You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Great War interview. This time I was joined by Dr. Vando Wilcox, the author of Morale and the Italian Army During the First World War, and several articles about morale in the Italian Army, which I actually used way back in episode 121, when we were discussing the Italian Front in 1917 and the Battle of Caporetto. More recently, far more recently, Dr. Wilcox has written The Italian Empire and the Great War, which will be the topic of our interview today. The interaction of the Italian Empire with the war is a topic that does not get enough coverage. Two of Italy's allies, France and Britain, had empires that are key features in their war efforts and in war histories. The French army would be able to call upon divisions raised in France's African colonies, which were brought to France to fight on the Western Front. The contributions of the British Empire are by far the most well-known, with Anzac troops featuring heavily in the fighting at Gallipoli and on the Western Front, Canadian troops making a name for themselves on the Western Front, and Indian troops being engaged in several different theaters and many other contributions from many other places around the world. Italy's empire was much smaller, and so the contributions from those colonies was less impactful. This was seen in Rome as a problem, one that they hoped to remedy by their participation in the war. Before the First World War, Italy was allied with Austria-Hungary and Germany, but critically, this alliance was defensive in nature. This meant that Italy was only required to join in a conflict if Germany and Austria-Hungary were attacked. When the war started in 1914, Italy used the excuse that since the other nations had not been attacked and had participated in the start of the war, Italy was going to set this one out. They would not set out very long, though. Italy became a very important free agent that both sides in the war sought to bring in on their side. This would eventually result in the signing of the Treaty of London in April 1915, and then Italy's entry into the war on the side of the Entente in May 1915. The contents of the treaty were simply a laundry list of territories that Italy would expect to receive if the war was won. This included territories along Italy's northern frontier, some Adriatic islands, areas on the Dalmatian coast, and then vague agreements involving territories in Africa and the Ottoman Empire. This would have been a huge increase in the total size of the Italian imperial territories, and including many territories that were felt to be very important to the future growth of that empire in the future. After entering the war, Italy would launch several attacks along the Isonzo in northern Italy, targeting the Austro-Hungarian forces around Trieste. They would launch not one, not two, not three, but eleven. Yes, eleven attacks in the mountainous terrain on the Isonzo front. Over the course of those 11 attacks, progress would be made, but very, very slowly and at very high cost. 
Then in late October 1917, all of those gains and and much more were wiped away when the Austro-Hungarian army, reinforced with German divisions, launched the Battle of Caporetto, a crushing defeat of the Italian forces. Critically, Caporetto, while devastating, would not cause an Italian exit from the war. They would eventually be able to slow down and stop the Austro-German advance while still in northern Italy. From these positions, they would then launch the Battle of Vittorio Veneto in the closing weeks of the war in October 1918, and this would allow the Italian army to close the war on one of its rare high notes. But then the peace conference happened. While officially the Italian delegation was treated as one of the major powers at the conference, being one of the big four, as they called themselves, what would become apparent was that Italy was not considered to be on the same level as the British, French, and Americans. This would result in the Italian delegation leaving the conference altogether at one point, before eventually being convinced to come back. The resulting peace resulted in far less territorial expansion than what the Italians felt they had been promised in 1915. This mutilated victory and the theft of imperial expansion from the Italians would become an important rallying point for specific political groups after the war, including Italian fascists. This brings us to our interview today. There are kind of two types of interviews that I do for the podcast. The first kind are interviews where I know a lot about the topic going into the interview. You know, I'll give the interviewee's work a read, uh, but, you know, it's often just a review of things I often already have some understanding and concept of. This interview is the second kind, in which I had very little previous knowledge on this topic. I don't think I'd ever read any, like, dedicated work to Italian colonies or Italian imperialism during this period. Reading through Dr. Wilcox's latest book was a joy and discussed topics that I had never seen anywhere else, which for a person who has spent years reading about the war is always incredibly exciting. So without further ado, here's the interview, and check out the podcast description for a link to Dr. Wilcox's latest book, the Italian Empire, and the Great War. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. 
That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of the Great War interview. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Vanda Wilcox, author of the recently released The Italian Empire and the Great War, which is a, a great book and also has a great cover image. Highly recommended. Um, Dr. Wilcox, how's it going today? I'm good, thank you. And thanks for inviting me on. I'm really happy to be here. Excellent. So we're going to talk about the Italian Empire uh, today during this interview. Um, and I would say that of the European empires, maybe the Italian one is slightly lesser known among most people. <laughs> so what is the Italian Empire as it existed in 1915? Well, you're right, it's lesser known. And one reason for that is it's pretty small. So in 1915, uh, the Italian Empire consists of a few African colonies and a couple of little tiny territories elsewhere. So in Africa, um, Italy has been ruling since the 1880s Eritrea and a portion of what is today Somalia. They call it Italian Somalia or Italian Somaliland. Um, in North Africa, they've only very recently conquered Libya. Um, which I guess we'll talk about more in a moment. Uh, but in 1911, 1912, uh, they'd gone to war against the Ottoman Empire to conquer Libya. They've also, in that same war, uh, conquered some islands in the eastern Mediterranean based around the island of Rhodes, which is an area that they call the Dodecanese. Uh, it's a group of basically Greek islands today. Uh, and they have a tiny little concession uh, in Tianjin in China. So that's the full extent of the of the Italian Empire as it exists in 1915, which compared to France or Britain is pretty small. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, those other European empires that you mentioned had, had uh, really high expectations for what the imperial contribution would be to any sort of large European war. What were the Italians expecting from their colonies when they went to war in 1915? It's a good question. The Italian justification for acquiring an empire was very much that it was going to help in times of war in exactly the same way as the British and the French expected theirs to. Um, I think that there is certainly a hope that those colonies are going to provide uh, resources where possible and potentially manpower as well. So uh, right away that the Italians had colonized East Africa, they began to recruit local East African uh, soldiers, uh, which they called Ascari, the same as the German word. It's actually from the, the Arabic for soldier. Uh, so there's a number of, of indigenous units that have been raised from the 1880s onwards. They've also started to recruit Libyan troops starting in 1912. So there's a decent number of colonial troops. Uh, and there's also the hope that food and other raw materials could be of some use to the to the overall war effort. Um, what, what was the, uh, you know, I think there's kind of a range of maybe treatment of colonies by these European powers uh, during these years. Um, was there a relatively good relationship or as good as it could be between sort of the Italian rulers and their colonial subjects? Well, that's a, a very complicated question. Um, because part of the problem is that everybody knows that the Italian Empire is not a settled Kind of done deal but it's still very much a work in progress and the italians perceive that but also so do all of their colonized peoples so in east africa the big problem for italy is ethiopia so they went to war in 1896 they tried to conquer it and they suffer the humiliation of being the first european power to be comprehensively defeated on the ground by 
an African nation. So that's um, a bit of a thorn in the Italian side, and it's a it's a thing they're going to come back to. They they haven't really uh, got over that humiliating episode, and of course. Uh, you probably know that in the 1930s, Mussolini is going to go back to Ethiopia and get, in his view, kind of revenge for this event in, in 1896. So there's there's very much this sense of unfinished business and that it's still a work in progress. And that, le- that definitely influences the way that they're treating people on the ground. They're seeing this as a kind of unfinished conquest. And the same is true in Libya, because officially on paper, Italy is the ruling power of Libya from 1912 onwards. But the reality on the ground is very, very different. Uh, Libya is divided into three different sections, Tripolitania uh, in the west, Cyrenaica in the east, and uh, Fezzan in the south. They've never really had any control over Fezzan. And from 1913, certainly by the beginning of 1914, Tripolitania and Cyrenaica both have massive insurrections, uh, uh, massive anti-colonial resistance movements going on. So it's really they're ruling on paper much more than in reality. Uh, and that's gonna become a huge problem once the war actually breaks out. Um, so it's a, uh, it's, it's quite a, a difficult relationship even before we add in the complicating factor of the war. Uh, so when, when in Italy enters the war in 1915, um, we talk about, you know, the, the Italians were expecting some imperial contributions from their various holdings, their their small holdings. Uh, so what was the contributions during the war to the fighting in Europe and, and in other areas by the Italian colonies? Right. Well, I think one thing that we should add before we get into the details of what the actual contribution is, is that the Italian concept of, of empire and colonies is a slightly unusual one because they don't just include when they say the word colonies they don't just include these african or eastern mediterranean colonies they're also thinking about a kind of informal system of what they consider to be emigrant colonies so italians overseas italian emigrants uh in north and south america in australia uh in wherever else they might be in the world are also considered as as under the heading of colonia of colonies so when you talk about what what does italy expect the colonies to contribute they're also thinking about this kind of informal emigrant empire, and they're very concerned that Italians in the USA, in Canada, in Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, they should all also be contributing to the war effort. So when we assess what is the war contribution of the colonies, we also need to think that they're, they've got this dual definition in a way. So um, Italians overseas, first of all, are supposed to come home and serve. So if you're an Italian citizen, you're liable to the draft wherever in the world you are. So if you're in an African colony, uh, if you're living in Tunisia or other parts of North Africa, there's lots of Italians in non-Italian ruled North Africa as well. They're all liable to the to the draft, Italians in America, wherever else they might find themselves. Um, and some of them do come home and serve. Uh, others of them are involved in fundraising. There's a lot of fundraising, um, sort of charitable efforts, patriotic inscriptions, things like that that are going on all around the world. And that's seen as part of this sort of imperial network. In a more practical sense, the direct rural colonies in Africa, that's a bit more tricky. They contribute, um, East Africa in particular contributes a lot of tinned meat. Um, this might sound a bit odd, uh, but you need to feed your soldiers. And one of the big problems for Italy is that it's conscripted most of its peasant farmers into the army. So food production at home has absolutely dropped right down. Italy is very dependent on imported food from Britain, 
which is ultimately coming from Canada, from the US, from wherever else, um, Argentina as well. Uh, but that has to get there. You have to sail it around the world. You have to have the shipping. It's got to come across the Atlantic in many cases. And it's not necessarily a big priority for the British Merchant Navy uh, or for the British Navy in general to be protecting those imports. So for Italy to be able to find its own extra sources of food is quite important. And in East Africa, they uh, set up huge meat canning factories uh, and they ramp up uh, production of cattle. They buy loads of cattle in from Ethiopia. In fact, what they do is they distort the meat production of the whole of the Horn of Africa so drastically that they cause local famines in the process of uh, shipping this canned meat over to the Italian front. Um, but that's that's one of the contributions, if you like, uh, that the colonies are making. Uh, it, it's um, it's actually quite a depressing story when you read what happens to the to the people on the ground who are the, the sort of harsh end of this policy. In terms of manpower, though, it's actually a bit of a disaster because although the, the army is ready and willing to deploy its um, colonial soldiers over to the Italian front, the government changes its mind. So 1915... We have um, certainly tens of thousands of indigenous soldiers trained, armed, equipped and ready. The chief general staff says, "Okay, where are we going to send them? We're going to send them to mountains, whatever. Uh, They even send a few um, a few officers down to do some specific training uh, with some of these troops about how do you fight in the trenches? How do we deal with barbed wire? What's a hand grenade? And to specifically get them ready to fight in uh, trench warfare to fight in the European front uh, and the government basically changes its mind and it says no we're not willing to use these troops in this way uh, and it seems to be very clear that it's about uh, it's a political decision that they don't want to encourage African soldiers to fight against white men uh, that the the kind of crossing the race line as they see it of having East Africans uh, of having Arab and Berber North Africans fighting against the Austrians is is a step too far Um, against kind of maintaining a a racial separation. So the chief of general staff is furious, but the government says absolutely not. These men can be deployed within Africa. They can be deployed in sort of garrison duties or in the colonies, but we're not going to send them to the the main front, which of course is completely opposite decision to what the French and the British are doing, who are sending Western North Africans, Indians and so on to all fight on the Western front. Um, So again, this is a bit disappointing from the point of view of imperialists, who were hoping that the Italian Empire was going to make a big contribution. In fact, it, it makes less of a contribution in a way that it could have done because Italy's own government decides that it would be uh, dangerous and undesirable to uh, to encourage African colonised peoples to think that they could fight against white Europeans. So you mentioned that a bunch of people, you know, Italian immigrants around the world were expected to come back to Italy and fight. Did a lot of them do so? Like, um, were they a large and valuable piece of the Italian war effort? Um, This is a good question. Um, Because in theory, they're all supposed to. In reality, it's kind of a choice. So they're not, if they do come back, they're not volunteers. They are conscripts, right? But they're conscripts who could very easily have chosen to not bother. Um, We can estimate just over 300,000 returning emigrants come back to fight. So if we have uh, the total number of men that are mobilized and do active military service is about 4.2 million. So it's a, it's a decent chunk. And um, there's a scholar working on this right now, actually, Dr. Selena Daly, um, 
who's an Irish scholar based in London, and she's she's calculated that it's a similar proportion, the returned emigrants are a similar proportion in the Italian army to the colonial forces in the French army. So it's a very similar kind of level of contribution uh, that we're talking about. It's about 150,000 come from North America and the rest from various other parts. So approximately 50% of these returnees come from, from North America. Um, but far more of them don't return. Hundreds of thousands more, probably at least a million, should have returned, and only 300,000 do return. Um, in theory, they could have been charged, and some of them are charged with draft evasion, and then there's an amnesty at the end of the war. Uh, the US government says we're absolutely not going to enforce the other people's draft, right? So there's no enforcement mechanism. The Italian government can't force those people to come back. It can exert some kind of pressure. It publish it can publish their names in the local newspapers of their family who are still in Italy. It can uh, threaten to, you know, prevent them from ever returning. It can threaten kind of secondhand penalties for their relatives who are in Italy. And that is, I think, what influences some of the ones that do come back. You know, if you don't go back when you're called up, maybe you'll never be able to go back. Or maybe your aged mom is somehow going to be humiliated in her village or whatever it might be. So that has some effect, but ultimately there's no way they can coerce someone to come from New York or Buenos Aires and force them to come back to Italy. Beyond just expanding territory, one of Italy's other goals was simply to show themselves to be a major power, which often manifested in having imperial territory, but also was exemplified by being able to project power around the globe. Could you talk a little bit about how Italy tried to do this sort of during the war and immediately afterwards? So one of the things that Italy wants to do to prove that it's a great power and it should be treated as a great power by the other countries in the Entente is to show that it's part of the global war effort. And the best way to do that is to contribute kind of globally and not only fight on its own front. So in 1914, already even before the war had begun, they've been interested in what's happening in the Balkans, they're interested in Albania, uh, and they start getting involved in the Balkan theatre of the war. They send a lot of troops to Albania, hoping basically to, to turn that into a kind of colony or at least a, a sphere of influence. Um, and then also later on, they send contributions to the main uh, Macedonian uh, Salonica Front. So uh, although it's under uh, the, the French and the British to make up the most of those troops, there's a significant Italian contingent there as well. And the Italians don't have direct interests in the, the sort of Salonica end of the theatre in the way that they do in Albania. But in both cases, they really feel that if they send these expeditionary forces, they're going to prove that just like France and Britain, they're fighting a, a global war. And the more the war goes on, the more appealing this idea becomes to the Italians. So they send people off, uh, a very small detachment, but they send people off to Sinai and Palestine in 1917. And they actually wanted to send more, the British say no. Um, and in 1918, they send, uh, again, not huge numbers, but they send troops off to fight in Russia. So there's an Italian detachment that gets sent up to um, uh, Manchuria, and there's another detachment that gets sent up to Arkhangel in the in the very northern part. So there's actually two separate um, expeditionary forces of Italians that are sent off to fight in Russia. So this is very much about kind of trying to project global power, trying to say, oh, you know, if, if France and Britain are sending these troops, we can do it too. Anything they can do, we can join in. And they also, in 1918, 
uh, send troops to France, right? So after the, the Battle of Caporetto in 1917, France and Britain send troops to Italy to help out. In 1918, Italy returns the favor, that's the theory at least, by sending troops to fight on the Western Front. And actually they end up serving alongside the Americans. So uh, a lot of the battles where the Americans are most active, uh, Second Marne and so on as well, uh, the Italian troops are, are kind of right there next to them. Does it make a decisive difference on the Western Front? No, definitely not. But it's very much a symbolic gesture to say there's reciprocity here. You didn't just help us out and then that was it. We help you out too. Um, and trying to uh, to project themselves as being on the same level. The real problem is, does Italy have enough military power to actually operate on the same level uh, as its Entente partners? And the answer is probably not. So uh, this uh, is not at all related to that answer or the question I asked, but it just popped into my head while you were talking. Um, how is the Italian empire sort of viewed within Italian society? Uh, you know, s some other empires are like critical pieces of like the national identity. Mm. Uh, is that the same in Italy? Um, this is a great question. And historians have a number of different answers to this. And one thing that really is very clear is that Italians today do not perceive the empire as having been very important. Um, they don't learn much about it in school. Italians keep saying, oh, the Italian empire in the First World War? Why have you written a book about that? Did we even have an empire? Surely not. Um, there's a very strong perception today that it wasn't very important. And if there was an empire, well, maybe under fascism, but not beforehand. At the time, I think it was taken a bit more seriously. And one of the reasons for that, which I think is really interesting, is the role that the, the Libyan war plays. So 1911 is the 50th anniversary of Italian unification. And there's all of these big patriotic celebrations. If you've ever been to Rome, you'll have seen the, the Vittoriano, the Victor Emmanuel monument, this massive, great, imposing white marble building, which they unveil in, in 1911 for the 50th anniversary to celebrate the kingdom. It's this big kind of year-long nationalist celebrations. And they invade Libya in the middle of that. And it's very much, we've you know completed our great nation and now we're going to become an empire. And it's one of the first heavily kind of mediatized events. The press is almost universally behind the war. Uh, the Catholic press is fully on side. There's criticism from the socialist press, but apart from that, across the political spectrum, there's really strong support for the war. And it seems to bring nearly all of the middle and upper classes together in this moment of kind of nationalist and imperialist enthusiasm. People seem to be very excited about going to conquer Libya. Um, and it can be spun in lots of different ways, right? It was part of the Roman Empire, so you're kind of returning to past greatness. You can have a kind of Catholic missionizing interpretation that you're going to go and spread the word in, 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 in the, to the heathen. Um, the people kind of, there's an economic interpretation. There's lots of um, quite misleading texts going around saying, oh, it's a land of milk and honey. It's going to be incredibly fertile. Um, it's not fertile now because the Arabs aren't clever enough to grow stuff there. But as soon as we arrive, we're going to magically make it into this incredibly fertile, prosperous, uh, wealthy land. So there's all these different versions of why people think they want to do it. But the upshot is, is that there is this genuine Im imperialist enthusiasm in 1911, 1912. Um, and you can see it right the way through. School books, magazines, newspapers, even stuff like what's on at the theatre. There's all these kind of imperialist plays and, and songs going around and stuff. There's 
kind of popular culture across the spectrum embracing it too. So while yes, the empire was small and uh, from today's perspective, it's very fashionable to see it as, as kind of largely irrelevant. I think at the time, a lot of Italians are pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, it's also a displacement activity because in 1911, 1912, it wasn't very clear how they could go about recovering Trento and Trieste. So that main objective of the Irredentists to complete national the national territory with these bits of land that still belonged to Austria. When you're allied to Austria, it's not clear how that might ever happen. So instead, you can focus your energies on a different kind of expansion that looks like it's actually a bit more plausible. So it's kind of a good alternative. Then, of course, once the war comes along, many of the people who are really keen on Libya perhaps are going to turn their attention and their focus a bit more to this more, more narrowly national war effort. But I do think that people are, or many people across the political spectrum, are, are surprisingly enthusiastic about the empire. The only group that really consistently speak out against it is the Italian Socialist Party. So you mentioned uh, earlier that um, some of the Italian activities caused famine in parts of Africa yep. because of sort of the resources they were extracting. Yep. Um, were there similar sort of events like that in other areas as well, where they were kind of extracting too many resources and causing serious local hardships? Uh, yes, this is also happening in North Africa. One of the motivations or justifications for Italian imperial expansion is linked to that question of emigration and having these these lots of Italians overseas. Many people are emigrating from Italy because they can't make a decent livelihood there. What about, the, the idea emerges, what about if we encourage them to emigrate to Italian-owned territories? Instead of then them going across the Atlantic, we could encourage them to emigrate to somewhere a bit nearby where we keep them kind of economically in the system. They'd be close at hand in case we need to conscript them. Then we would be able to get them to come home and so on. So there's this hope that Libya could be an alternative um, for an alternative destination for these emigrants. So it's supposed to be a settler colony. They think of it as being like a new Algeria, right? Um, hundreds of thousands of French and other Europeans have gone to Algeria and settled there. And that's what Italy wants Libya to be. The problem is that, as with all settlement colonies, this is based on the assumption that the land is empty, which, of course, it is not. So in a lot of places, this is in, involves a process that um, has been described as forced nomadification. In other words, you force people out of their villages and homes, uh, you take them over for Italian settlers, then you claim that they're nomads and they have no culture or claim on the land anyway, because otherwise they wouldn't be wandering around in the desert. Um, uh, and you can therefore sort of further marginalise them uh, socially and politically. So the, the full settler colonial project that Italy uh, began to undertake uh, in North Africa is exceptionally damaging to the peoples of, of Libya. They actually, the thing that limits it, if you like, is that they never get very far down this road in this particular time period, uh, partly because the First World War takes up a lot of their attention, but also because the peoples of, of Tripolitania and Cyrenaica resist extremely energetically uh, and have no intention of just lying down and taking this. And they're fighting this ongoing large scale guerrilla war. So uh, there's basically around 100,000 troops. 100,000 Italian soldiers pinned down in Libya by this ongoing resistance throughout the war. Um, and that's what prevents 
the Italians from basically inflicting any more damage than they do. There is famine, there are food shortages, they forcibly close a lot of the food markets in the interior and stop people from uh, selling their products at market, which obviously leads to even more food shortages. Um, they're extracting wood and water for military purposes, which otherwise could have been being used for the local population. But the full uh, brutality of the Italian occupation in North Africa doesn't begin until the fascist period, uh, when the fascist regime is able to totally dedicate all of its resources to what they call the pacification of North Africa, uh, of Libya. Okay. Uh, interesting that um, I, I was unaware of this kind of uh, resistance movement in North Africa that was happening throughout this entire period. That, that's interesting to hear about. Well, what's really interesting as well is that people have often considered this as being separate from the First World War, and it does begin beforehand. But once the war breaks out, um, it becomes, uh, at least this is what I argue in my book, it becomes really part of the war because the leadership of the rebellions uh, and there are multiple different resistance movements, not really a rebellion, it's resistance is a better word, I think. But the leadership is working very closely with advisors from the Ottoman Empire. There's some pretty high-ranking Ottomans. Uh, the younger brother of Enver Pasha, the, the, the Turkish minister for war, Nuri Bey, he sent out uh, to Cyrenaica and Tripolitania to work closely with the indigenous resistance movements. Uh, later on in the war, I'm actually a junior member of the of the royal house, a young, uh, I think he's the great nephew of the sultan, is sent out to be a kind of symbolic leaderhead. So the Ottoman Empire is very involved in trying to encourage these anti-Italian uh, resistance movements, but their money for all this is coming from Germany. Germany is sending submarines full of cash, munitions, artillery, um, a number of officers, especially technical officers. So they set up a radio station and they've got German radio operators there in Misrata on the uh, Tripolitanian coast. Um, and this is a really essential part of the, uh, the anti-colonial movement. And the fact that the, the Germans uh, and the Ottomans, and to some extent as well, the Austrians are all sending over uh, cash, resources and officers to help coordinate this resistance to me, puts it firmly within the panorama of the war. This is part of a central powers-backed struggle against the Entente. Interesting. I know a better time than try to throw off your colonial masters than when they're busy fighting a war right. somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there are linked movements um, against the French in Tunisia and against the British control in Egypt uh, periodically. So yeah, it's... Uh, um, there's a kind of wide-scale anti-colonial movement in this period. And, of course, it's going to only intensify afterwards. And then, you know, in 1919 in Egypt, things are, are all going to come to a head. So this is a, a really important moment, I think, for, for North African anti-colonial movements. Yes, let's talk about those kind of events after the war a little bit here. So there are some somewhat famous events in, in Egypt, specifically after the war, um, clashes between the British sort of imperial powers and the Egyptian people, does that does that also have effects in sort of Italian North Africa? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I found most interesting researching what was going on in North Africa was learning about the, the resistance leaders themselves, who uh, the Italian sources put, sort of depict them as these backward tribesmen who know nothing about it. 
and nothing could be further from the truth. They're extremely mobile and they're extremely well connected. They're part of international networks. They're traveling around the Mediterranean. They're going to Egypt. They're going to Algeria. They have connections in Turkey. They're going to Istanbul. Um, they're very, they're corresponding with people all over the, uh, the Arab world. So they're, they're kind of in these deeply embedded international transnational networks. Uh, they're corresponding with people from all over the Arab world uh, and anti-colonial activists from all over the place. So they are, they're very interested in what's going on in Egypt and in other parts of the Arabian Peninsula as well. Uh, and they're, they're, they're both highly mobile and engaged in all this correspondence. Some of them are going regularly on, on almost annual pilgrimages to Mecca, and they're meeting all kinds of interesting people there and they're coming back with these ideas. So um, definitely what's going on here is, is deeply interconnected. And in Tripolitania, in the end of 1918, as the war comes to an end, something extremely interesting happens. Um, the Tripolitanians create the world's first independent Arab Republic. They declare independence uh, from Italy and they set up the, the Tripolitanian Republic, it's called. Uh, there's a group of five or six uh, leaders who come together to form a, a sort of power sharing agreement, I guess we could call it. It's possible that if any one of them had been able to fully seize power, he would have tried to establish himself as, a, as an emir, as a hereditary ruler, but because no one individual was powerful enough to do that, uh, they, they create a republic. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't last very long. The Italians, they're not quite powerful enough to control the territory, but they're also too powerful to allow a successful independent state to, to crop up. And a, a sort of strange half compromise deal ends up being made. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's an important moment. And the, the generation of leaders that operate in Tripolitania, a lot of them end up going into exile. A lot of them are connected with other, other um, Arab nationalists and anti-colonial leaders too. And in Cyrenaica, so that's in the eastern portion, the leader of the Senussi, which is a, a religious brotherhood which operates in, uh, in eastern Libya, um, who, who comes to the fore in this period, ultimately is going to become the first king of an independent Libya after the Second World War, uh, under the name of King Idris I. So this generation of, of First World War and immediately post-First World War leaders uh, is really significant. Also, after the war, you know, um, one of maybe the most famous parts of Italian sort of interaction with the First World War is that in 1915, they were promised all of this imperial expansion sort of opportunities by the other nations that they joined and really don't see delivery on a lot of those promises. Um, what, what was uh, what was Italy hoping to gain from their sort of participation in the war? And why did they kind of fail to get any of that? Um, well, that is, that's the big question, right? Um, <laughs> what they really hoped for, I mean, the concrete list of things that they're offered in 1915 is in the Treaty of London. They have a relatively specific list of territories. But what it all adds up to is that they want to be an acknowledged and confirmed great power. They want to feel and, and everyone to see that they're on the same level as the other European great powers. Um, and that doesn't work out for many reasons, partly because they're not on the same level as the European other European powers, just in terms of really their wealth um, and the resources that they're able to mobilize. Uh, one of the, the things that becomes very clear, especially when it comes to colonies, is that the bigger your empire, the easier it is to claim more empire. 
Whereas actually, if you don't have very many colonies, you don't have the wealth of the standing or the clout to claim more colonies. And that's what happens at the end of the war, right? The, the biggest colonial powers, France and Britain, gain the most. Um, it's to him that hath shall be given, basically. So the Italians are disappointed both in the specific, they don't get all of the specific territories that they'd asked for, but also much more generally, there's this sense of um, disappointment and frustration that they haven't received that kind of acknowledgement that they wanted. And France and Britain do violate the terms of the Treaty of London quite um, cheerfully in a number of ways. One of the things that they'd promised was uh, the repartition or the redistribution of the Ottoman Empire would take place in equal terms. And in 1917, they've even signed a new treaty uh, to that effect called the Treaty of uh, the Agreement of Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne. Uh, they've come together and they've allocated a, a portion of the Ottoman Empire to be given over to Italy. So just as uh, France is going to get Syria and Lebanon and Britain is going to get uh, Iraq and that portion uh, heading southwards, they're going to give basically southwestern Anatolia over to uh, the Italians. This never happens. And France and Britain tell Italy, even before the end of the war, in fact, in October 1918, actually, yeah, we know we signed that deal, but we're not going to do that. Um, and of course, the Italians are furious. But it wasn't actually even up to France and Britain, because by the time that the, the dust settles with the Ottoman Empire, we've had the Greco-Turkish War, we've got the new Republic of Turkey. It's completely impossible for Italy to claim that territory for itself. It did send over troops, right? In 1919, uh, there was an Italian expeditionary force to southern Turkey. They land in March 1919, uh, and they end up with, at one point, at least uh, about a division and a half in total, uh, trying to occupy this area. But they, they simply can't hold on to it. They're not willing to start a major new war with Turkey about it. And um, the difference, I guess, with the French and British, the French and British have claimed for themselves the non-Turkish portions of the Ottoman Empire. So Ataturk and the new Turkish nationalists are more or less willing to say, OK, fine, you can take these Arab states and, and do what you want with them. What they're not going to let go of is a core portion of Turkey itself. And the area which had been allocated to Italy is a core portion of Turkey. So there's no chance that the Italians are going to be allowed to get that. Um, and, and they don't. But this all adds to that feeling of resentment that Italy has been kind of hard done by, that it's been... Uh, sort of cheated out of its fair share uh, at the Paris Peace Conference and afterwards. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of picking a, a spot in Anatolia that, that they wanted to be their own. Was there any justification behind that? Or were they just like, yeah, we'll take that little piece right there? Well, there are, um, there are Italians living in some of these coastal towns, right? So I mentioned before the Dodecanese Islands, that's the group of islands that are based around Rhodes, and they're pretty close to the to the Turkish shore. So there's a number of these islands that are in Italian hands from 1912 onwards. And now officially, after that war, they were supposed to be under Turkish sovereignty, and it was supposed to just be a temporary Italian occupation. The Italians want to turn that into something permanent, but even more, they want to use that as a jumping off point, as a kind of bridgehead to expand into mainland Anatolia. Uh, and the really tempting uh, objective is Izmir, Smyrna, uh, where there is an Italian community. Um, it's a 
I mean, there's Italians all over the place, though. This is there's all sorts of places where there's Italian communities. There's an Italian community in Glasgow, right? It doesn't mean that you can suddenly turn up an Italian community in New York. What are they going to do? Suddenly claim it? It, it, it? There's no real justification. Um, a few people dig out the the sort of time old ancient Roman Empire stuff. Um, the king claims to believe that Smyrna is an Italian town where everyone speaks Italian, and they, you know. They're all having pasta on Sunday, but no, basically it's it's opportunism, and there's, there's no better way to describe it. It's an area which they think is ripe for industrial development. It's an area which they think is ripe for agricultural settlement. So we're back with that idea of the settler colony, where all of your dissatisfied, especially southern Italian peasant farmers, instead of emigrating to New York or to Buenos Aires, are going to go there instead. Um, it's a it's a, a kind of fantasy, really, that bears no relationship to reality. And I think a lot of Italian imperialism in this time period is really based on fantasy. It's not a particularly realistic proposal. Um, when we look at it now, a lot of these ideas seem quite um, ridiculous, I guess is the best word. <laughs> but Ridiculous is, is, is a totally good word for that. But I think, um, you know what was the French claim to Syria? You know, what was the, what was the British claim to Palestine, right? It, why not? That's the Italian. The Italian argument is that, right? Why shouldn't we, if the others are? Um, and the point is, nobody is seeing Italy as being in the same category as France and Britain. And as far as the Italians are concerned, that's the real problem. Uh, you know, we can see it's you interesting mentioned... the way the Greeks treat Italy in this time period. So, the Italians have got Rhodes, the British have got Cyprus. Greece goes to Italy and demands that they evacuate Rhodes and gives them back, but they're not demanding Cyprus off of the British with quite the same energy. Why not? Right? Both of those islands, from the Greek perspective, should be Greek, and yet the British are not being sort of ordered around in this same way. So the, the Italians find this really infuriating. Why should they not be being put on that same level, especially at the end of the war? The Italian... Uh, losses in the First World War is actually almost the exact same percentage of population as the British losses, right? The Italians have suffered in human terms just as much as Britain. They've contributed everything they could. Um, why do they not get the rewards of that as they sort of perceive them being? Uh, that, will, that would be a, a very important question for, you know, the first few years after the, the end of the First World War right. in Italian politics. And um, I think this is a part of the picture of the rise of fascism that hasn't been given enough consideration, right? When we talk about uh, Mussolini and this idea of the uh, the mutilated victory, the idea that the Italian victory hasn't received the consequences that it deserved, and we have this sense of, um, you know, kind of nationalist anger, which Mussolini and the fascist movement is able to channel, the sense that the old liberal democracy was a failure, we tend to see that very much just in terms of the those Adriatic territories, right? So the city of Fiume and the, the lands in the upper Adriatic coast that Italy wanted and doesn't get. But actually, I think that the imperial context is really important too. Italy also wanted lots of territory in the Eastern Mediterranean, which it doesn't get. It also had hopes in East Africa, which it doesn't have satisfied. It has uh, kind of various grandiose imperial schemes of one kind or another, which uh, all of which fall flat, even at the most petty level, right? In uh, in Tianjin, in China, 
the Italians say, well, can't we claim the Austro-Hungarian concession? We were talking like a square mile of land, right? Can't you give us the Austro-Hungarian bit? And they don't even get that, right? So there's this real sense that across the board, imperially, as well as nationally, they've been denied. And that definitely feeds into the rise of fascism. And if we think how important imperialism is going to be to the fascist regime once it's in power in the 20s and 30s, I would argue that it's a bit strange that we haven't seen how important imperial sort of dissatisfaction is to the rise of fascism as well. That is a fantastic point. Um, so, so you, you know, when we're looking at these these colonies, you mentioned that before the war, Italian sort of ability to project power was somewhat limited in a lot of their colonies. And, and then you, we just got done talking about a little bit about how there was like active rebellions and active sort of independence movements in these colonies after the war. So do the Italian colonies that, that they do have, that they do still control, sort of go back to the pre-war kind of limited uh, Italian control uh, up until the, the fascists come to power and things really change? So um, the period of 1919 to 1922 is basically a period when um, Italy is completely broke. Um, Italian war debts are massive. The Italian economy has, has kind of crashed. You've got all of these returning veterans who are unemployed. You've got um, lots of disabled veterans and widows and orphans campaigning for pensions. Um, the whole thing is a real mess economically. And uh, in mid-1919, we get a new prime minister, uh, a guy called Nitti, who's an economist, and his basic object is, uh, let's just stop spending money on anything. Um, and you, you can see his point because they don't have any money to spend on anything and no one's going to lend them any money either. So all of the big things that they'd hope to do, all of the big schemes are going to fall apart partly because there's no cash to actually do them, right? How are you going to occupy and seize all of these new territories when you can't pay for any troops to go and do that? And the same is going to apply in the colonies. Nitti and uh, all of the men who follow in that interval period don't want to spend a penny more on the colonies than they can possibly avoid doing. So it's kind of a period of stasis. By the end of the war in North Africa, Italy only really holds the, this very, very narrow coastal strip. And that's going to basically continue to be the case for the next few years. They, they more or less come to a compromise deal with a lot of the resistance leaders that say the resistance leaders will officially agree to support Italy, but functionally they're continuing to govern in their own names. Um, in East Africa, the situation is relatively stable. Um, the East African uh, Italian colonies have remained under Italian control, but everyone can see that Ethiopia is still going to be this kind of long-term um, objective. So then the, once the fascists are solidly in power, they spend the, 19, the rest of the 1920s pacifying or reconquering Libya. Uh, and then after that, they're able to turn their attention to East Africa in the 1930s. <laughs> 